with all the stories of bad leadership out there, I think sometimes it's good to remind ourselves of good leadership. Over 10 years ago, 33 Chilean men were trapped half a mile underground by 700 tons of rock. After more than two months, all 33 emerged alive. The last man out was appropriately their foreman, Louis Urzua. The president greeted him and told him, you are not the same and the country is not the same after this. Under Urzua's leadership, they accomplished great things under much pressure. They stretched the emergency food meant to last 48 hours to more than two weeks. They took tiny sips of milk and bit bites of tuna every other day. They sparingly used their helmet lamps. They used their bulldozer to carve into a natural water source. Otherwise, they minimized vehicle use to protect the air quality. Urzua kept the men by his side, calm, collected. He communicated clearly with the rescuers on the surface. What we have known that Louis Urzua had this in him, that he would be such a hero if this disaster didn't happen. As they say, pressure makes diamonds, and good leadership is precious like diamonds. And in today's passage, we'll see just how precious it can be in times of catastrophe. We're going to read 1 Samuel 30 in a minute. And as a review, we saw in the previous chapter 29 how God providentially intervened in David's life. The Lord kept his anointed out of the upcoming battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. He and his men returned to Ziklag. But it's not that God merely wanted David away from some place or somewhere. God wanted David elsewhere. Often God removes us from one place so that we can fulfill his purpose in another place. Would you agree? Our Heavenly Father moves us like pieces on a chessboard. The Lord took Daniel from the nobility of Jerusalem to the courts of Babylon. The Spirit took Philip from a baptism ministry in the desert to an urban ministry on the coast. Sometimes the Lord reveals why we're here and not there, why we're at this square or back to square one. Other times we don't have a clue what's going on. And as we continue in the life of David, we see that at times he didn't know either. God brought him from Apek back to Ziklag, but why? And let's read today's passage, 1 Samuel 30. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it in page 210. 1 Samuel 30. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there, from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. 
So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept, until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Achimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, for two hundred stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Bezor. They found, then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate and they let him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Carathites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? So he said, Swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my, fa- my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. That David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Now David came to the 200 men who who had been so wary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Bezor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came up against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute 
and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now, when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah to his friends, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To those who are in Bethel, those who are in Ramoth of the south, those who are in Jatir, those who are in Aroor, those who are in Sipmoth, those who are in Eshtemoah, those who are in Rachel, those who are in the cities of Jeremiahites, those who are in the cities of the Kenites, those who are in Horma, those who are in Chorashan, those who are in Atak, those who are in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. So before I break down this passage into smaller bits and pieces, let me zoom out a bit. I mentioned last time that throughout 1 Samuel, there are often comparisons between David and Saul. In the two previous chapters, 28 and 29, we learn the destinies of the two leaders as it relates to the upcoming battle between Israel and Philistia. Saul can't get off that runaway train headed for destruction. As for David, on the other hand, God gets him out, turns him around in a 180 degrees turn. Now we're at the final two chapters of 1 Samuel, 30 and 31. We see one more compare and contrast. When David and Saul face the worst trouble of their lives, How will each respond? When all around there's despair and sorrow, what does a good leader do? What does a bad leader do? David shows us what a good leader does. But whether you're a leader or not, we can learn from David's example of godliness. There's three lessons for us. One, Strengthen yourself in God. Strengthen yourself in God. That's verses 1 to 8. Two, strive in unity for God. Strive in unity for God. Verses 9 to 25. Three, show the generosity of God. Show the generosity of God. That's verses 26 to 31. First, David teaches us that we must strengthen ourselves in God. If we know a little geography, we'd understand better the physical condition of the men in verse 1. From Aphek, where we last saw David, the Ziklag, we're talking about 50 miles. And with heavy armor, weapons, and other military equipment, Covering such a distance in less than 72 hours must have been hard on their bodies. I'm sure they were eager to sleep in their own beds at home. Add to that physical fatigue, sudden emotional distress. Once David and his men smelled the smoke and saw the burned buildings, their heart must have sunk. Since there were were no corpses, there must... There have been still hope that the loved ones are still alive. But as you can see in verse 4, they're not in a hopeful mood. 
They wept and wept, mourned to the point of utter exhaustion. For David, it gets worse. He's not only physically tired, he's not only emotionally drained, now he has to deal with the possible rebellion, a mutiny. From verses 1 to the first half of verse 6, things are piling on on top of David. One burden after another. Maybe your life looks kind of like David's at this point. You've got enemies coming after you, family in trouble, friends turning against you, problems at work and home. You're overwhelmed in every possible way. Now, if you find yourself in David's shoes, come back to the second sentence in verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. You know, let's say your life's a book, and one of his pages looks like verses 1 to 6a. I pray you can turn the page and write a personalized version of verse 6b. But Phil strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But Bernardo strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But Brandy strengthened herself in the Lord her God. Only four words in the original language, but how profound they are. Not a parenthetical phrase. It's a turning point. It's not an add-on. It's foundational to spiritual victory. We see similar ideas elsewhere. You know that chapter about putting on the whole armor of God? Remember how Paul begins the passage in Ephesians 6? Before you run into the battle, before you flash that sword, read what verse, uh, verse 10 says. My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We might be eager to do great things. We can't wait. But Isaiah 40, 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. After finding strength in God, David searches for the will of God. Unlike Saul, David seeks guidance through biblical means. There are some parallels here in chapter 30 with chapter 23 when David saved the city of Keilah. Recall how first David prayed directly to God. But once Abiathar, the priest, arrives with the ephod, he employs his priestly mediation. Now inside the priest's breastplate of judgment, there were two stones. They're called Urim and Thummim. They represent opposites or extreme contrasts. So these two stones were used for binary decisions, yes or no, I or nay. And just as it was back in chapter 23, David receives a yes answer to his question here. He and his men will pursue, and they will surely recover all that they've lost. God promises success. So here's another simple application. 
like David and unlike Saul, we must seek God's will through biblical means. And what I mean by biblical is literally, we start with the Bible. He gave us the scripture so that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that leads to the next principle for godliness, strive in unity for God. So with the strength of God and the will of God, David moves in the confidence of God. I picture him with determination in his eyes, urgency in his feet. You know, leaders like David are so empowered and so intense that it could be hard to keep up with them. And that's exactly what happens at Brook Bezor. We're not sure exactly how far it is from Ziklag, but we do know for certain that David and his men had no real rest for days. A third of them could not go on. But the 400 continued, and they find an Egyptian, a slave abandoned by his Amalekite master. They revive him, and then he provides David with key and tell. He formerly belonged to the troops that invaded the territories of Philistia and Judah. A quick historical note on verse 14. The Karathites are either another name for the Philistines or a subgroup of the Philistines. Next, David recruits this abandoned man to, who secures his safety from David and leads him down the travel route. The Amalekites are caught up completely off guard and slaughtered except the 400 that got away. David and his men recover everything and every person that belongs to them along with flocks and herds. The heavy pursuit has paid off for David. The dangerous crisis of authority is now averted. But as they return, there rises a crisis of unity. What are they to do with the 200 that stayed behind? So this is a multiple choice question with two answers. One answers in verse 22. Even if the 200 are entitled to receive back their family, they do not deserve the spoils of war. This harsh conclusion comes from the mouths of wicked and worthless men. Reminds me of Proverbs 16.27. An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. The other answers in verses 23 and 24. Note the wise words of God's anointed. It is the Lord who gave, preserved, and delivered. Some of these men thought that they earned it. They owned it. And they deserved it. When in fact it was God's gracious provision. And David then stresses the unity of his army whether one's at the front lines or in the supporting rear, all play a role in the larger picture. This wise judgment of David endures as a military principle. As Proverbs 16.21 says, the wise in heart will be called prudent, and sweetness of the lips increases learning. And David's wise principle increases our learning. 
it anticipates some principles for church unity today. I want to ask you, have you ever grown impatient with others at church? Do you feel like you're speeding ahead of them in your spiritual life? You read your Bible cover to cover, your prayer life's flourishing, and you evangelize regularly. And then you look around, or rather you look behind you, you see those 200 people, can't keep up, and you ask yourself, why can't they be more spiritual and passionate like me? Some people do think like this and take it to the extreme. They become lone rangers instead of playing a team sport. One time, my former pastor, Mark Dever, asked his friend who came to church, only in time for the sermon, though, he said he didn't get anything out of the rest of the service. Then Mark asked if he had ever thought of joining the church. He looked at him like he had two, uh, three heads and then said, I know what I'm here to do, evangelize and disciple. If I linked arms with the, all those people, they just slow me down. Dever thought for a moment and then asked, do you think that if you joined arms with all those people, they might slow you down, but you might help to speed them up? And God might be more concerned about the corporate whole than simply about you. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, skipping a few, few words here, but I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you, with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If you haven't committed yourself to a gospel-preaching church that takes God's word seriously, I encourage you to do so today. Consider applying for membership here. Are we perfect? No. Is it possible that we slow you down a bit? Sure, in the same way being a father or a husband slows me down at times. But I tell you, there's a deep comfort and wonderful joy in belonging to God's family and committing yourself to a local church. It is God's will that we strive in unity for God as God's people. As a congregation, these days we're aiming to apply Philippians 1.27, stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. At all times, it's important that God's people stay united and stay connected. One way to do that is through financial support and prayer, and that leads to the third principle of godliness, show the generosity of God. Now, after an experience like this, if I was David, I'd probably shrink back and be very protective of myself. 
But David, as he returns to Ziklag, he does not shrink into some preservation mode. He looks beyond his own needs and considers the needs of his people and friends. And we see the beneficiaries. The last few verses of this chapter mostly consist of people and place names. They're either in David's tribal territory of Judah or in the land of his allies. I'll just highlight a few. Bethel in verse 27 is a lesser known city, not that famous place of Jacob's dream and Jeroboam's golden calves. In verse 29, we have the Jeremiahites and the Kenites. Recall that David's been telling Achish that he's been raiding them during his service in Upward Gath. In verse 30, 31, we have the first mention of Hebron in the Samuel narratives. This location will be much more prominent in 2 Samuel. It's at Hebron that the men of Judah will eventually recognize David as king in 2 Samuel 2. At this point in the story, David's building his case through these gifts. They're starting to believe he's worthy to rule. And not just Hebron, all those on the fence about David can be assured now that the Lord gives him victory. Now for some applications. You can follow David's example in showing the generosity of God. I believe we need two things, the right opportunity and the right motivation. First, look for the right opportunity. I mentioned Philippians earlier, and as he closes that letter to the Philippians, he recognizes, Paul recognizes their giving to the gospel ministry. He says in chapter 4, verse 10, you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. As believers, we ought to be actively looking for those in need. We can start by looking around our church, our supported missionaries, then looking around to our neighborhoods in our everyday lives. As Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then once we identify opportunities, we must make sure to have the right motivation. I was thinking about this recently and talking about it with the council. We're discussing ways to do good in our society. But what separates our work from humanitarian efforts and general philanthropy? Here's one way it's different. Even as we help our brother, sister, neighbor, or whoever, our highest goal must be to glorify God. Note how the scriptures interpret our giving as worship. The Philippian support of Paul was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, chapter 4, verse 18. The writer of Hebrews exhorts, do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well-pleased. Hebrews 13, 16. So in reality, David's not only giving to people, is giving to the Lord. He took the opportunity 
to show generosity and ultimately glorify God. I remember going to a service where they projected on the screen that offering time is still worship time. Sometimes people take that time to go take a phone call, whisper some few things with people around them. No, offering time is worship time. You know, I think we all agree with that. I also was thinking about some other opportunities to glorify God and help those around us right, as a church. Um, as a flock group meeting, um, we actually, this yesterday, uh, we decided to go and maybe visit some neighborhoods in this area and give out free Bibles or actually just the New Testament. And we have some in the narthex if you want to take some with you. And we want to give it to people who don't know Christ, the gift of the Bible, right? And in that, in that New Testament Bible is we have a pamphlet that talks about the Grand Prix that's coming up with Awana, where there's free dinner, right? And then there's Christianity Explained, which we like to offer regularly. Right? And there's a gospel tract. That's one way to glorify God. Give free things, right? Who doesn't like free things? Maybe there are other ways that we can glorify God and be generous to those around us. And Phil came with me. It was a great time. And I hope that you can do that. Talk with people and find opportunities. Find the right motivation to show the generosity of God. So let me land this sermon and look ahead to the next sermon. So we have one more chapter in 1 Samuel. This must have been a strange time in Israelite history. Because north of Judah, the Philistines are lining up to battle Saul. His troubled reign is about to end. In the southern parts of Judah, the people are going to line up to follow David. His promised reign is about to begin. Desperation up there, anticipation down here. It really does matter what king we serve. And here's a gospel application. As much as David exemplifies good leadership, we have a better leader in Jesus. He's David's son because he came from that royal line, but he is also David's Lord. He's greater than David because he is God. This is the king we serve. Though fully human, he's fully divine. He came to earth and lived a perfect life. He deserves to be crowned, but he was rejected by men. Like David, Jesus had his moment of despair. His was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw God the Father, and then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. He needed it. He would be betrayed by one of his own. Then all forsook him and fled. His most loyal follower, Peter, would betray him. Worst of all, he would be abandoned by his father as he was crucified. But Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. 
He suffered so that we might live forever. When he offered up himself, he gave himself as the substitute, taking on the penalty of sin that we deserve. God's just wrath fell on God's holy son. He was buried and on the third day rose from the dead, proving his word to be our eternal king. He ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Christ died and rose victorious over the grave. He finished the work required to enter heaven. All that's left for us to do is to respond humbly, to surrender, turn from ourselves and our sins and repentance, trust in him alone for life everlasting. There's nothing we can do to earn God's presence in our lives. It is God's grace. Christ not only brought us to God for eternity, he also brought believers to each other in unity. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all been like those evil and worthless men in 1 Samuel 30, 22. We've been prideful and we exalted ourselves. Maybe we even spoke disparagingly of others and caused divisions. But Christ brought us together as members under his headship. And as he returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, he has enriched us, his body. Ephesians 4.8 says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And when our Lord descends and returns someday, he'll bring the wealth of all the surrounding nations to his people. God makes known the riches of his mercy on us, the vessels of mercy. Let's think about what Christ has done for us as we pray and sing our final song. Let's pray first. Lord, we think about the great acts of generosity and great victories of leaders And we look at your son, and we realize, as we look at our God, as we look at you, that we can never outgive you. None of the accomplishments that we can record in history will ever match the great victory of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, and as as we go our separate ways, help us to remember that we follow and we serve a great king and it is under his leadership that we flourish spiritually and we someday wait and we know that someday your son will come to reign again. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name.